As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. the total soccer show and the latest edition of your favorite show format it's take it or leave it the concept is simple you send us your hot takes and we decide if we're going to take them or leave them today we're taking the temperature of your takes about the suitability of the editor visi for CONCACAF players var checks woohoo and having less international breaks even bigger woohoo from me my name's ryan bailey joining me to get the takes on your takes we have mr joe lowry hello joe lowry takes on takes on takes today ryan how are you Take squared. Doing well. Thank you, Joe. Thank you very much for asking. Also joining us on this show, we've got Graham Rutherford. Hello, Graham. Hello, Ryan. How, how, how are you today? No domestic dramas in my street today, unlike yesterday. So it's been a bit boring for me. It was like something of a telenova yesterday. Uh, and I definitely didn't get my recording times wrong before this episode. I'm definitely mm. not a little bit out of breath. And I know listeners, that's what listeners want from a podcast is they want someone breathing deeply into yeah. the microphone. So I'm just that's giving right. the listeners what they want. There you go. Listen, if you do hear some light panting during this episode, it is Graham who has uh, returned from his uh, vigilante walk around his neighborhood uh, just to make this recording <laughs> Gotta stay happen. alert, folks. Gotta <laughs> stay alert. Uh, the, sort of, the only thing worse than light panting, Graham, has got to be chewing, right? On a podcast. That's the, that's the last thing you need. Yep, spits out chewing gum now. Okay, we're good to go. <laughs> Wonderful stuff. Hot take coming to the uh, podcast with chewing gum in. I like it. We're getting off to a good start here. Uh, no Taylor Rockwell on this episode. It is the trio, the power trio. That's what we've settled on, right? We're not using the other one. Good. Um, the uh, <laughs> patreon.com slash total soccer show for our bonus content, by the way. Bonus episodes on there. We've got video content on there. And of course, access to our Discord where all the parties happen. You can't spell disco without Discord. Patreon.com slash total soccer show. Joe, feel like some takes? Should, yeah, should we load them up? Let, let's lo- let's load them up. I can't believe how almost that that uh, that almost works for you, Ryan. Not quite, but almost. I like it. Does it need workshopping? Is that what you're well, telling me? Well, it's it's just it's not true, but it's like almost true to the point where I had to think about it for a few seconds. And that's not just because we're recording in an hour that starts with five and ends in a.m. Um, but I I'm <laughs> totally here for it, Ryan. Let's do some takes. Okay, uh, Callan Geho is coming in with our first take, this one coming via Twitter. Over half of starting strikers in the Premier League would win the Golden Boot if they started up top for Manchester City. Ooh, mm. that's kind of spicy, Graham. What do you think? Do you feel uh, Nicholas Jackson's a Golden Boot? Jay Rodriguez. <laughs> is Jay Rodriguez a Golden Boot if he starts up top for Man City? Oh, Stalin Albion legend, Jay Rodriguez, of course. <laughs> yeah, why not? Um, let's let's lay the table, set the table, do something to the table to, to start with here. So the players we're talking about are, to go through the 20 Premier League teams, or 19 minus Man City, uh, Gabriel Jesus, Darwin Nunes, Ollie Watkins, Son Heung-min, Alexander-Arnold, Rasmus Hoyland, Evan Ferguson... Mikel Antonio, Nicholas Jackson, Ivan Tony, when he returns, I'm still counting him, and Matthias Cunha, Odson Edward, Raul Jimenez, uh, Taiwo Awonyi, 
Dominic Solanke, Carlton Morris, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, Jay Rodriguez, the aforementioned, and Cameron Archer. That's every first choice number nine, by my reckoning anyway, in the number in the Premier League, excuse me, this season. Um, I tried to apply some numbers to this, some logic to this. So Man City have indeed created the most big chances, as they're called, in the Premier League this season, 101. They've created in 23-24, and it's quite a big jump down to second place. So that's Chelsea on 81, which is kind of interesting in its own right that Chelsea are creating the second most chances in the Premier League this season. Um, so there is something in the premise of, of, of Callan's take that um, Haaland scores as many goals as he does, at least in part, because his team creates the most chances. I think that's the premise of the question here, is that it's that Man City create more chances, therefore if you're the number nine in that team, you would score more goals. I then tried to look at some shooting stats, and this is this is pretty reductive. I'm pretty sure someone much smarter than, than I would be able to do a better job of this with more advanced metrics, but I was going to use expected goals, but that is often a consequence of a team putting a player in a position. They've created the chance for the, for the player. So I looked at goals per shot, which is not it's not perfect either, but I guess it is a measure of how well a player is taking their chances. So Erling Haaland's goals per shot number, by the way, is 0.21 this season. Of the players I mentioned, Wanyi ranks the highest at 0.33, and then it's Evan Ferguson, and then it's Alexander Isak at 0.29, then it's Sonkir Min at 0.26, and then it's Mikel Antonio at 0.22. So those are the only players of that list who rank above Haaland. I'm, I'm giving my, giving you my my whole working here all in one go. Then I'm yeah. factoring in how these players would fit into to City's style, or at least if they could play the way that Haaland does. So I think of those that group, I'm thinking... Ollie Watkins, potentially. Evan Ferguson, certainly. He's been kind of likened to... He's called the, the Irish uh, Erling Haaland. And Ivan Tony, I think, are probably the best fits in that regard. So, all in all, to give you my conclusion, if I was to pick players to win a golden boot at City, keep in mind that they, they have to score more goals than Mohamed Salah, who scores like 25 goals a season. The players that I'm picking are... Evan Ferguson, who I reckon is very good. I think he's going to be a bit of a superstar in the Premier League. Alexander Isak and Ivan Tony, And that is much less than half of the, the Premier League. So I'm a big fan of Gabriel, Gabriel Jesus, but I can't take him in this because he literally played for Man City and didn't win a golden boot for them. So I think uh, on balance, I am leaving this one. Okay, that is very thorough working out, Graham. I want to see uh, all your worksheets for that one after the show. Very impressive stuff. Joe, did you reach a similar conclusion? I'm presuming you did. I did. I'm leaving this take, although I love this take from Callan. I think it's really, really fun. Uh, that being said, I didn't do anything that, that Graham did in this process, <laughs> except for lay the foundation to, to sort of get to the motivation behind the take, right? The idea is, and the reason why I was tempted to take it, is because City are so good at creating chances, and they're specifically so good at creating chances for their number nine, right? They're set up to create chances for the player in that spot. Their wingers go wide when they have the ball, and then it's players like Bernardo Silva and Julian Alvarez in the half spaces. Kevin De Bruyne, when he comes back, will likely take that spot from Alvarez. Generally, those players tend to be more playmaker types, so Alvarez does change the calculus there. But the, the play is really funneled into, at least in central areas, into the number nine. But I just don't think there are quite enough elite strikers who are at that level. And I, I parsed through some of the numbers, too. I didn't go into the, the goals per shot. It's a little difficult with sample sizes and all that stuff. But it, it does give us some information on that front, absolutely. I had one difference from Graham, though, even though we came to the same conclusion. I don't think you get to 10. I did have Gabriel Jesus on my list. Absolutely. He's the first name on my list. Because right. when he's at Man City, he's not the clear starter, right? Not, not for any consistent period of time, anyway. It's Kun Aguero who's getting a bunch of the minutes there. And then Gabriel Jesus is, is never really the guy in the attack. Whereas with Arsenal, I know Saka and Martinelli are, are both dangerous players. Saka in particular is goal dangerous for them. But he is the guy. And I don't think it's a surprise that we're seeing Arsenal look so good. And Gabriel Jesus looks so good when he's in the lineup. So I have him on my list. I have Youngman Son on my list. I have Ollie Watkins on my list. That maybe is stretching it slightly, but he is a good player. I have Isak on my list. And then I am tempted by Darwin Nunez and Nicholas Jackson. It doesn't feel like those players have converted their chances at, at the rate maybe you'd expect. But they are both very, very good, even within their slightly dysfunctional teams. And yes, Chelsea do create a lot of chances, but they are dysfunctional uh, in, in various ways. They're very good at finding opportunities. And that is the most important part about goal scoring is finding the chance in the first place. So maybe you can get the list up to six or eight, but 10 feels like you're asking a lot. 
Just going back to Gabriel Jesus, I take your point, Joe, that he wasn't um, he wasn't the main man when he was at City, and even when he did start games, he would often start out in a wide position, right? Um, and Guardiola would use a more of a kind of false nine, Phil Foden in, in in the middle, or Sergio Aguero when he was when he was still at Manchester City. But I would argue that Jesus plays that role very differently to someone like Erling Haaland. I'm Agreed. sure you would agree, you would agree with that. He's more even for Arsenal, where he is kind of the main man in that attack. He's more of a, a facilitator. We've spoken about this a number of times that he is he's the player that gets he creates the space for the likes of Martinelli and Odegaard and Saka. And if I'm looking back at last season. And this is where I wish I had um, goals per 90 minutes in front of me. I haven't been able to find them in the time that you were talking, Joe. But I do have the the goal numbers from last season. And the caveat here is that Jesus was injured for um, like 10 games last season, I believe. He was Arsenal's fourth top scorer last year behind Saka, Odegaard and Gabriel Martinelli. So that just that just kind of highlights my point that he's a he's a facilitator. So I think if you put him in that city team, he does a very good job. I just wonder if the players around him are are emboldened as goal scorer goal scorers rather than him being the golden boot winner in that team. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Okay. Um, I am leaving this also because of what Graham and what Joe said. Uh, I think uh, Callan's take Graham comes from the fact that you know that that Man City goal where you cut back and you t- someone else taps it in. Uh, it it feels so automatic that I think we've even discussed on TSS like could one of us be a Man City striker <laughs> and get some goals on a season. So to, to finish off this question, would you get a goal if you started every Man City game, Graham? No, I don't think I would. <laughs> no. I think Joe. it's very difficult to score a goal in the Premier League, even if you are playing for, for Manchester City. I take your point, Ryan, that they, they do have that muscle memory, Man City, of the, the, the Pep Guardiola, the City pullback. Although we are seeing fewer of those um, those those chances created yeah. since Haaland has kind of come into this team. They have, they have changed. In that regard, um, Callan's question talks about starting centre forwards. I kind of wonder if you put someone like Bakaya Saka into the City team, whether whether he would have his goal scoring opportunities um, lifted as a result of that. Would he? Because you know we're talking about Salah being the the other contender for a golden boot in the Premier League. He's he's not a centre forward, not in a traditional sense. Anyway, he's a wide forward. So is there maybe a wide forward somewhere in the Premier League like Marcus Rashford? Would he maybe have a chance of of, of a golden boot if yeah. he's playing at, at Man City? I don't, I don't think it's impossible, right? Rashford is is probably just outside the list that I would have, even if we expand it out. But he's someone who thrives running behind and has always sort of been this positional tweener. And, and kind of Son is as well, right? He's playing as a nine for Tottenham, but hadn't been playing that role for the entirety of this year. Has done it before, but not consistently because Harry Kane was there. He's just an elite goal scorer. He's just really, really good at finding those pockets of space, getting on the ball and putting it in the back of the net. Salah doesn't play as wide, typically, as Bakayo Saka does, right? You get Salah much more in the half spaces and and even drifting centrally at times. But I think there are players who are flexible enough in the Premier League and in other leagues around the world, right, who could take the goal-scoring burden and, and really make it their own. Also, Ryan, I would not score for Manchester City, to tie that back, because I'm bad at soccer. Oh, oh don't put yourself down, Joe. Uh, okay, but... Graham, on, Ryan, on that do you logic... think you would score a goal for Man City? Are you, the, are you the person who answers the question, would you win a tennis a, a tennis game against Serena Williams? Uh, <laughs> are you the guy that ticks yes? In that I would survey? not back myself in the tennis game against Serena Williams, but maybe a League Cup game when they're 7-0 up against Barrow. <laughs> I would uh, I'd maybe back myself for a tap-in. Maybe. Right, okay. Maybe. I'm, I'm still not so sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, Callum, thank you very much for that take. We now go to Bry Guy on the Discord. Uh, VAR checks should be capped at 20 seconds with no pit side monitor. If they can't spot an obvious error in that time, the call on the field stands. It will result in more missed calls, but ironically, I think it would increase the integrity of officiating. Interesting take here, Joe. Kind of spicy. Does it, it? It obviously diminishes VAR by its essence to put a time limit on it and to take away the pit side monitor. How do we feel? Is it a halfway house? This one? I'm leave it. I'm leaving this one overall. So I'm I'm not opposed to the idea of a time limit on VAR decisions. I don't think that's a bad idea, especially because VAR should be about clear and obvious errors and. How much time really do you need to spot one of those, right? That being said, 20 seconds is like nothing, right? 20 yeah. seconds is, n- is not a lot of time. I don't think it's enough time to do anything meaningful. And maybe this is where Brad Guy would come in and say, well, if it's clear and obvious, like you don't really need more than 20 seconds. And I guess I've never been a referee. I don't know how long all of this process takes. But a number, even though it's abstract and, and I kind of just pulled it out of my pocket, 
a minute some feels feels somewhat more fair where there's a little bit more time to pull up the replay which it has to take some time and go through this whole process it gives you a little more wiggle room than than 20 seconds does but again I, i'm not opposed like i was tempted to take this because i'm not opposed to getting uh, adding some sort of cap onto the timing of all this and i'm certainly not opposed to getting rid of the monitor that the ref goes over to look yes. at on the sideline Agreed. so i learned a lot about that in doing research for this episode i didn't really know exactly what that was for I don't. I didn't have a great grasp on it. So I guess the idea with the the pitch side monitor is it's not it's not like the ref is going over there because the VAR can't decide on a call. That's not what's going on. The ref goes over there because the VAR has told them like, hey, you've gotten this wrong, right? This this decision in all likelihood is going to be reversed. Go over and look at it because the referee by law has to make that decision themselves. VAR cannot overturn the call by the referee, the referee under advisement from VAR has to turn over their own call, right? That I, I guess kind of makes sense because you want a game to ebb and flow from the same person, right? You want them to be the one in charge. I can understand the motivation behind it. If these are though highly trained referees, just let the VAR make the call. Don't waste the time having the center referee walk across the field, go to the monitor. It adds drama. And I am kind mm. of here for that WWE-ness of it. It is theater. But also soccer is theater, and I think we can get maybe enough of that on the field itself. So I am leaving this overall mostly because of the 20-second thing, and I also don't understand really at all what it means by it would increase the integrity of officiating. Maybe I'm just too stupid to understand what that means. I don't I don't know. I don't get it. But anyway, somebody else can talk now, but I'm leaving it. But I'm into the idea of getting rid of the pitch side monitor because that seems dumb. Yeah, I agree with that, Joe. So just going quickly, a quick beat on the on the time limit. Um, I agree, 20 seconds doesn't seem like a lot of time at all. Finding the camera angles is probably going to take longer than that in the first instance. I also think there's a chance that having a time limit might have the opposite effect and you might have referees making more hasty decisions with the clock counting down to zero where they're thinking ah, i need to make a call and that's okay we'll just go with that i'm not sure about it but we'll just go with that with that decision the pitch side monitor i totally agree joe that's where i landed on with this is take away the pitch side monitor i know people really value and joe you're talking about having the same person the value of having the same person on the field making the decisions in a, in a match when I think about it, I'm not even really sure that I'm that, I'm that bothered about that. Because as you say, they're highly trained officials. You already have the principle of lines people making decisions on the... And I know technically the ref, that, that's a guidance. The referee can actually ignore an offside flag. But when have we ever seen that in a match when an offside flag goes up and the referee doesn't make the decision? So we already have the principle of other people on the field making decisions on behalf of the referee. And so I just think it would be a lot cleaner if there was a refereeing team that included a VER and an on-field referee, and the VER has responsibility for making those decisions. And that way you cut out the time of having the VER having a look and then communicate communicating to the referee. We've all seen the referee have their finger to their ear and then they go over to the side of the pitch and then they have a, a look. I think that stream, streamlines it a lot, just getting rid of the pitch side monitor. So I'm not taking this for the time limit, but I am getting rid of the monitor. Alternatively, um, we could just get rid of the whole thing and getting rid of the monitor could be a gateway drug to, um, what is it that proper football men say? Getting our game back. We need to get our game back. Take back control of our game. That's the sort of thing. Oh dear, let's not do any take back control stuff today, Graham. <laughs> um, when the Premier League first had VAR, Graham, they didn't have the pitch up monitor, and then they introduced it. Is that not? Yeah. Is that how I remember things going? So it was, it was, it was, it was asked for. It no, was... wait. I, th I think there was a pitch side monitor. They just never used it. Is that not right. a thing? But they in other leagues, they it did. was there. Yeah, in other leagues yeah. that they did. You, you very rarely saw a Premier League referee go over to the pitch side monitor. It mm. happened like once or twice in the first season, and then they changed that. And now, in hindsight, I kind of wish we could go back to <laughs> how it was in the first season. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think. We we're not going to go. I don't think we're ever going to get to the place where we get rid of VAR because the pro the product at the top level is no longer for the live audience. It's it's a it's a TV product now. I think we can probably agree it's going that way, and that's the way it's going to be. It's not going to reverse itself. We're not going to take control back from that. It's going in a direction with the NFL. Yeah. The live audience is secondary. That's kind of just the fact. Where it's we're measurable. At. It's measurable if you're at a game. I was at I was at Scottish Premiership game. I've not been to Scottish Premiership game since they introduced VR. Kamarnik Hearts at the weekend. Uh, Sterling Albion's game got postponed so i decided to go to another game because i'm like that ryan i'm sick in the head I have to go uh -huh. to a game at three o'clock on a saturday um everyone was furious with the vr even when it was something for the for the home team and i kid you not with about 35 minutes of the game left the row in front of me was a family 
and they knew the, the people that were sitting next to me. I didn't know anybody. And they turned to them and said, after a VR break, they said, ah, we've had enough. We've had enough. We're going. And they all left. And I thought they were kidding. <laughs> I thought they were going to the toilet or to go and get a pie or something like that. They never came back. So I'm like, did they genuinely leave because of the out of fury at VR? But yeah, everyone was we, very, very angry at the whole strong. thing. We all we all think this is gonna pass though, right? I mean, Graham, you I, I asked you the other day about why it feels like we're getting so many of these controversial decisions and they're all being like analyzed in such great depth right now. And and you sort of said, Well, feels like this is a little bit of a coincidence, right? The number of high profile controversial calls that have happened in the span of a very short period of time. That feels like it's not going to be sustainable, and eventually we'll just go back to the regular level of VAR complaints, and fewer Scottish families are going to be leaving in the 35th minute. Maybe <laughs> yeah. they, I hope they ended up with a pie. Truly, I, I really do. Uh, but <laughs> in my view, I think a lot of this is is going to pop. Like this is a bubble that's not yeah. going to be around forever. I I used to think that, Joel. I think the thing that's changed is the number of managers that are now coming out and saying, "I wish this wasn't around." Like Gary O'Neill. I know, I know he's not the biggest name in the Premier League, but nonetheless, a Premier League manager. Last week said, I've now changed my mind on VR. Brendan Rodgers in Scotland, who's the Celtic manager, the most powerful manager in, in the country, said we should get rid of VR. So that feels like a difference where previously managers were advocating for VR to come in and it feels like a, a lot of them just now want rid of it. So I don't, I don't know if that changes the internal politics because, of course, if the, there's a num- enough clubs in the Premier League that want to get rid of VR, then I would suggest, I know there's an IFAB implication there, but they could get rid of VR. Um, so I do wonder politically if there's a change happening there. Is it just not the grass is always greener, Graham? We want VAR. Oh, yep. now we've got it. We see its shortcomings. <laughs> yeah. We don't want it anymore. It's just it's just a, a, yeah, re- a reason for complaints. And guaranteed, as much as I am very much um, in opposition to VAR now, I wish it would be scrapped. There would be instances, if they got rid of it, where we all think, ah, I wish we had VAR for that yeah. instance. That That yeah. would happen. Exactly. The nuance of the sport and the nuance of life. I will say, I'm going to leave this one as well. My concern being about that capping at 20 seconds, I think that puts an inordinate amount of pressure on the VAR to get something done within that time period. I actually spoke with, uh, when I was thinking about this question, I spoke with someone high up at the PRO, the Professional Referees Organization, uh, which manages the uh, referees in North America. Yeah, fancy. I'm very fancy. Uh, They said to me, that um, some people say that if you can't see in 30 seconds an issue, it isn't clear and obvious. However, it's not that simple. For example, some checks might have three reviewable elements. You could have a potential foul, an offside, and a goal all to check. So you're not doing that in 20 seconds in yeah, it was like some the, scenarios. The, the Newcastle goal against Arsenal a few weeks mm. ago was like that, right. where there were three different elements and it took ages. Yeah, there you go. For that reason, leave him. But yeah, I can, uh, I can maybe get on board with the pitch side monitor and giving a little bit more. Uh, trusted the VARs to uh, have their uh, decisions um, impugned by the referee. Let's take a quick break. <laughs> when we come back, we're talking international breaks. My favorite. Back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Total Soccer Show, we're taking it or leaving it, and we have a hot, fresh take served up here from Madler09. Madler, love that. From the Discord. Instead of four international breaks, there should be two two-week long breaks in October and March. Less breaking up the season, it gets rid of one of the worst ones, September, and allows for more of a tournament feel for international teams. Everyone's nodding along on the call here. Hard agree from me. The less breaks, the better. Joe, I'm going to go one further. Let's just scrap international soccer <laughs> together, yeah? With me? Taking it? Yeah? No. Yeah, I'm, I'm leaving <laughs> this one. The, the, the difference in how we view international soccer I think is fascinating and very much represents how new the club game is and how unstable it still is in the United States. The fact that 
you know, me living here as a neutral didn't have like a, a really relevant local team for a long time. And then finally they're actually playing on a real soccer field. And in that time, like what are, what are soccer fans in Phoenix doing? A lot of them are watching Mexico and a lot of them are watching the United States, right? You go around into these markets that have either never had teams, still don't have teams or don't have teams that have been around for very long. And the rooting interest is placed in the national team. And I recognize that that is a very different perspective than what happens across the Atlantic and certainly happens in, in the United Kingdom. So all that to say, I think there are reasons why we disagree on this, but we, we definitely disagree. So I'm leaving this and, and I'll say this. I, I don't think a little, uh, having a little less whiplash, right? Of club soccer, international soccer, club soccer, internet. That's a, a positive. I think that is a benefit to this. And I, I don't particularly enjoy as someone doing like what we do. And even just as a soccer fan, you know, realizing, oh, you know, club soccer's on break this weekend. That's not super convenient. And then you had to switch into national team mode, right? Some of that is a little jarring as a consumer. So I do see some positives here from the club side. Fewer interruptions is a, is a benefit, I would imagine, for them. And from the international perspective, having two weeks at a time instead of just one week or whatever it ends up being, right? It would help teams gel and build their tactical identities and on-field chemistry, I think, in a more uh, consistent way and maybe even a more sustainable way, which would presumably make the quality of international soccer a bit better. Now there's trade-offs on the other side, right? Maybe going so long without windows would make the quality worse. But the real reason I'm leaving this isn't isn't because of those potential trade-offs. The reason I'm leaving this is based off of squad selection and younger players. I think this is a massive downside for younger players. Basically half as many chances to get your first call up. That is kind of crappy for players who are trying to break into a team and maybe a net negative even with the benefit of those longer consecutive training time for smaller countries, basically for the non-elite countries. If you're trying to figure out your best squad, but you've got two chances a year to do it outside of World Cup qualification, maybe a couple of other random things along the way, that is not something that I think national team coaches would like. And as someone who really does enjoy international soccer, I'm going to I'm gonna leave this one. Hmm. Graham? I'm doing the, the Italian hand gesture for taking a tioli. I'm taking <laughs> this one all day long. Um, I had in my notes that I couldn't really think of a downside. Joe's just giving me a downside. He's right. There'll be fewer call-ups and maybe fewer opportunities for younger players to get into squads. I don't know if that's a FIFA-mandated thing, but couldn't the US or any other country just expand the squad yeah, so you, that there are more you call-ups? You, you could, but then like it's not the same experience, right? Not only You're in the camp, which is good, but now your camp has 35 players and you're not training 11 v 11 with the first choice. And it's just a very, very different, almost unsoccer like environment. But I guess for players at Chelsea, there's no difference going from one, <laughs> the world's giantest squad to yeah. the international giant squads. Well, they're not even in the same dressing room as the, as the right. first team squads. Right. Um, but uh, yes, absolutely. I am taking this one. By the way, Madler09 is right that the, the September break is the worst one because the you're worst. just getting into the swing of the new season. New storylines are starting to emerge. You've had the summer. You've had two months of no club football and then everything grinds to a halt. What I, makes again. it worse, Graham, is the October, you know, the one coming pretty like three weeks afterwards as well. Well, you've got it's September, like... October, November. Yeah. I, also th I also think November. I'm not a huge fan of the November one because by that time, um, a lot of the teams have already qualified for tournaments and there's a lot of sort of meaningless uh, meaningless games. I was in the unique position of Scotland being in in, in that position um, this time round where our two games in November didn't mean anything at all. So it kind of does feel, it, it feels, it doesn't feel appropriate to stop the club season for that either. So I, I, I think both on the club side of things and the inter international side of thing, it just things, it just helps with maintaining the momentum of the club season. And um, in the question... There's the talk of a tournament feel. That's the thing that really attracts me to this is that you would almost have, I think the March and October breaks would be treated like many tournaments, like many World Cups. And I, and I really like that idea because I think that allows, I often think when international football, you almost need a, re you know, when you start a new Netflix show and they give you the recap of what's happened previously and the f before the first episode of a new season. Uh, it almost feels like with international soccer, you need that sometimes where you come back into the international break and you think, what happened in the last one? You can't really remember previous results or performances, or I, I certainly um, can't. So having them bunched together, I think it allows you to build storylines about the, na the national teams. It allows you to build the momentum. It, allows to, it gives people time to get interested in the national teams for a prolonged period of, 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 of matches. And Joe mentioned whiplash. It avoids that whiplash of going yeah. from club to international to club to international over like three yeah. three months so yeah absolutely i'm taking this one okay I, I, as as previously stated i'm taking it too i think actually graham there was a point where you and i were both writing for bleacher report where we would churn out 
churn, uh, <laughs> you know, consistently. And one of the ideas I propose, which I still kind of like, um, I don't know how, wor- how it works practically these days, was to have all qualification in odd summers. Say, like, uh, all qualification for Euros, treat it as a mini tournament in the odd year. And for World Cup qualification, do it in the odd year before the World Cup. So that's a mini tournament in itself. No international breaks. Just get all your friendlies done in the summer. Uh, friendlies, uh, international breaks, sorry, in the summer. Replacing yeah, I- friendlies. I'm not. I'm not. Um, I'm not totally in opposition to that. I just think having a full year between the end of qualification to then the tournament starting, like there's, you have such an element of the unknown. Like teams yeah. will have changed makes so it much better, in right. that time. Uh, <laughs> makes it more chaotic. I don't know if it makes it better, but I am generally in favour of bunching the internationals together a bit more. I actually not just from, as I say, not just from the club side of things, but also the international side of things. I think it would improve um, the, the international game as well. Joe, you you buying that a a, a tournament a qualification tournament would that spice things up for you at all? Mm, maybe I think overall this is good for the club soccer and bad for international soccer and wherever you fall on that spectrum of what you enjoy more is probably where you're gonna go here. Yeah. Um. So really, I need Taylor here, and then we'd be two on two, and then you know we'd be at a stalemate. That is fair indeed. Uh, Madler, thank you very much for that take indeed. We go now to James Lambert, who's uh, submitted this take on the Twitter on the X on the ten. On that thing, uh, quality winning players like Darlington Nagby and Julian Gressel have been uh, still shuttled around MLS. This is a sign of the failure of MLS roster rules, which forced teams to suppress the salaries of players just below DP level or move them on when they succeed. Joe, take, leave, yes, no. I'm taking this with, with the caveat of I don't know exactly what James means by failure because it's by design, right? You know, Having players have to move and limiting the amount of quality that can be on any one roster is by design. That's what Major League Soccer wants in its current format, at least. When you have good players and they want to get paid, you can't fit all of them into your team in a salary cap league. That's what happens in American sports. I think what James is getting at, though, is not that it's like this failure of how the rules are currently constructed, but that MLS is being held back by the teams being so limited when it comes to building their rosters and then maintaining them that these teams in MLS are not truly gaining ground when it comes to improving their product so that more people want to watch it. And that I absolutely agree with. I think this is by design of the rules, but it is, it's not ideal for where MLS is right now and the opportunity that it has while a certain Lionel Messi is playing in their league. I'm into the idea of there being some sort of spending threshold that teams can't go over. I don't think MLS turning into the Bundesliga where there's not generally that much title intrigue or Liga where there's even less is good for Major League Soccer. Like, I, I don't think that's a good idea, and I think these European leagues are trying to figure out a way out of that happening all the time. And they are having a much harder time doing it than from where MLS sits, where they're obviously farther away on the quality spectrum, but on the competition side, there is at least some intrigue as the year goes on. So I do think that for MLS to take a step forward to improve the quality of their own league, teams need to have a handful of Gressels and of Nagbys to go along with their Dennis Bawangas and their Cucho Hernandez and their, you know, maybe, maybe the, the occasional former European star here and there, right? Right now, these teams don't have enough of those players that are making $1 million or $1.3 million or whatever it is, right? In that tier, they don't have enough players to go out and, and consistently put together elite lineups that can compete against Liga Mekis teams and, and perform really, really well in difficult environments. And more importantly, to draw the casual viewer. And that's by design right now, right? That is how the roster rules are built is to limit what these teams can do when it comes to spending and to try to keep everybody bunched together. There's obviously benefit to that. As I said, there is also obviously, as James is getting to, flaws with that. So that design and really the extent of that design, I think, is holding this current era of Major League Soccer back. We've talked about this before. And I do agree with James that it is a problem. So I'm taking this. Yeah, Joe, when you say it's by design, do you mean with the consequence or the intended con- consequence Consequence being parity between teams? Is right. that why MLS has this in place? MLS wants parity. They also have a lot of owners that don't really want to spend a lot on their soccer teams, right? They want to have their asset value increase over time and sit back as as their team appreciates. And that's their right to do as the owner of a sports team. Like they, they own that thing. They can make that decision, but... MLS has a lot of of folks that don't really want to open up the pocketbook. And MLS also, I think, understandably so, to an extent, values parity so that they don't turn into some of the European leagues that just simply don't have that or or even have that among, you know, two teams or three teams. La Liga is is a duopoly or maybe if you toss Atleti in there every now and then. (coughs) 
So MLS doesn't want to be that. They want parity, and they also, maybe more unfortunately, a lot of teams don't really want to spend so that they can have four Julian Gressel level players and then three DPs on top of that. That's that's something that only some owners seem to want. Yeah, and I think that I think the parity in the league is something that is worth protecting because I, I predict that in the next ten years the the lack of parity that we see, the inequality that we see in the big five European leagues is, is be- going to become a real problem for those le- leagues. I think fans will get fed up after a, a, a while. And I think that could become a real selling point for, for MLS over the next 10 years. So they do need to protect that to a certain extent. But you can't build interesting storylines and players can't establish connections to clubs and fan bases if they're moved on every time they succeed. And even as um, people who talk about MLS, we, we talk about the good teams, right? You think of t- like Premier League, La Liga, we talk about the good teams. And so teams have to be allowed to build something that lasts more than like two seasons, which is kind of how it feels with 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 MLS at the moment. So yeah, I'm, I think James is on to something. I'm, I'm taking this one as well. We've spoken a number of times on the show about the MLS roster rules and how they prevent certain teams from building things. Um, I think they need to raise the floor that the, the bottom rung players are the, the amount that they're earning every season. But I also think that tier two and tier three before but below the DPs, excuse me, is also where some of the money needs to be injected. And I guess that's players like um, Darlington Nagby and, and and Gressel. Walker Zimmerman was another player that, that sprung to mind who kind of was passed between teams before he was made a DP at, at Nashville and they lo- they locked him down. These these players are, are, are important players for the league and I do think they need to be looked after a little bit more. I, I, I get the sentiment as well, Graham, but it, the concept of players being moved on quite a lot is not entirely unique to MLS in its defense uh, if you look at low league soccer in in the UK for example like for, for AFC Wimbledon we'll have a, a, an outstanding player who we know like we've got one at the moment Almadia striker who I know is going to be sold in January because the finances dictate it so you still get a, a churn of players but, that, but for different reasons right yeah that's the key thing the fact you, you Wimbledon just don't have the money to keep him around whereas it's all money an though, LAFC or an LAFC or whatever they they have the money they've got rich owners they're rich clubs they're mm. having to get rid of players um or even if we're talking about Columbus with uh with with Nagby and Gresso they're they're having to. I know they've joined Columbus from other clubs, but let's just say they were moving on again. They've got the money to keep these players. It's the roster rules that are forcing them. How many times have we had a successful team in MLS? They enter the Concacaf Champions League or whatever that's called now, the Champions Cup, and it's almost like, well, this team's going to be weaker next season because they're going to have to get rid of some of their key players. That just makes yeah. it difficult for them to to build anything that's sustained and is lasting. But I suppose yeah, that's fair. But I suppose by the same means it's it's economics that are forcing those players to move on both in the example i gave and in mls isn't it whether it's it's, it's a different kind of economics but it's still money that's forcing those yeah. changes i think that's certainly true it's just a matter of where that pressure is coming from right whether mm-hmm. it's coming from the level and sort of the natural financial constraints that come from other teams around you just straight up being richer or whether it's coming from rules that are imposed upon you by the league that you're playing in and i think mls is obviously in that second category in a lot of cases and a club like Wimbledon is is in the first category. So different, I guess, different financial pressures along yeah. with, yeah, it, it's all allocation money or actual money, depending on the situation. There we go. All right, James, thank you very much for that take. Um, by the way, Graham, a handful of Gressels is my new band's name. Uh, I hope you come and see us I on like tour it. at some point. Uh, I'll be using that in the future. We're going to take a quick <laughs> break. When we come back, a few more takes for you. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, we are teoling. That's what the cool kids are saying, Graham. That's what I hear, Teoli-ing. Yeah. Mm, okay. Sure. Okay, if uh, you say so. 
<laughs> I Riley's... actually quite like it. I used it earlier. I'm not going to give you too much of a hard time for that. I like it. Use it all you want. It's got a ring, doesn't it? I like it. Uh, Dioling right now is Riley Cycle, uh, who has uh, submitted their take uh, via our listener questions form. Sure. Uh, despite playing lower level of competition, being in CONCACAF is better than being in other confederations because it allows the USMNT to practice the most important principles Please. a national team needs. How to be confident with the ball and how to break a defensive low block. What do you think, Joe? Are you taking this? We're presuming you can't practice those principles in, say, UEFA or any other confederation? Yeah, that, that's the problem. So uh, my, my first instinct was like, yeah, it is, that is a really useful part of CONCACAF, the fact that the U.S. gets to work on breaking down blocks and that they end up being the protagonist a lot of, in a lot of games. I think it's great that the U.S. gets those reps, but Ryan, you just got to the heart of the matter, right? You take another step back and you think, oh, yeah, you can get that and you can get other stuff in, in other confederations too. You get the challenge. Let's take South America, for example. You get the challenge of breaking down Peru and World Cup qualifying, who are struggling right now in, in Common Bowl. And then you also get the challenge of matching up with Argentina and Brazil and Uruguay and trying to figure out, okay, how do we want to approach this game? Do we want to open up and try to go toe-to-toe or do we want to sit back? What, what is our balance going to look like between those things? In UEFA, I was looking at Euro qualifying groups and the U.S., if they were in a group, could conceivably play against France and the Netherlands and then also have Greece and Ireland to break down. It, it, it is just so much more well-rounded in some of these other confederations. Yeah, Comable, uh, CONCACAF excuse me, has a range of quality, but it's a lower range, and the quality is lower at every level. Right now, the U.S. is top dog, which is a good thing because that means they're the top dog in CONCACAF, and that's, that's great. But they're not being tested by elite teams in their, uh, in their own confederation. They're being tested by bad teams that require some block-breaking, which is good, but you also get that other places. So I am, I'm, I'm tossing this one out. Yeah, is the point though, though not that you, the level of repetition you would get in Concacaf, right? So you're right, Joe. The, the, you have more rounded tests in UEFA or Conmebol or whatever. But if the US is going to become a dominant soccer nation and win World Cups, you think about the teams that do that. Um, maybe France is an exception, actually. Now that I do think about the teams that do that, but a lot, some of those teams at the top in the in Tier One, they play a ball dominant style and they come up against low defensive defensive blocks, and that's where the US wants to be. So I guess the point would be instead of getting two games in a group to practice that game plan, you get you know five or six games in in a qualification campaign to to do that. Is that would that not be beneficial? I th- I think it would be beneficial if breaking down a low block was your only goal, right? I, I think yeah. some of those could be helpful, but the reality is that the US, they're going to get to the World Cup in 2026 and they're going to play probably a couple of bad teams along the way, but they're also going to play some good teams. And so having the chance to play against those teams on a regular basis, like I think we we get really into, from a USMT perspective, the question of, well, why can't they create chances, right? Why can't they do this against a low block? And that's a valid question. The reality is everybody's bad at breaking down low blocks. That's just how this sport works. But some teams are better at it than others, and, and folks, understandably so, want the US to be better at it. But you get to the World Cup, yes, you'll have to do that, either along the way or when you're there, but you also have to do other stuff. So I, I think it is, it's not especially useful that a lot of CONCACAF presents that as the defensive approach. That being said, it's not like that's the only look you get, right? Mexico doesn't really play like that against the U.S. Canada will open up and play a bit more. So again, I understand where this take is coming from. I just think you get all that and more and at better level with better tests in a lot of these other confederations. Now, the, the one reason that I can get behind CONCACAF being the best confederation is that World Cup qualifying is really, really hard in a lot of places. And it's hard in CONCACAF, right? We saw the U.S. go down in Trinidad and Tobago recently and lose. You know, it's it's difficult to win games in CONCACAF on the road. Really, really difficult. Probably more difficult than anybody in any other confederation gives it credit for. But these teams are still weaker than in so many other confederations. If I'm the U.S. and I know 2018 happened, I don't think the U.S. is qualifying out of UEFA in 2018. You know what I mean? I, I would rather be in CONCACAF and be tasked with qualifying for the World Cup, especially an expanded World Cup than I would be in Comable or UEFA or CAF or any of these other ones, really. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, so Joe is Levy McLeverson. Graham, you are also? Yeah, I'm leaving it as well. I was just trying to make the argument to, for, to, to take it, to make it a little bit more interesting. But yes, I agree with Joe on this. Okay, I suppose the, the, the essence of, uh, of the point here is that other confederations might be more holistic in what they offer. 
I just like using the word holistic. It makes yeah, no sound. one knows what it means. I remember a Man City used that in a statement once did. and I didn't understand it then and I don't understand it now. They used to say they had a holistic uh, approach to their philosophy, which it just sounds like <laughs> a tautological thing to say. It doesn't make much sense. But uh, that would, That's a Sports you... Illustrated column, I think, somewhere yeah. in there. Very good. All right, we are taking a holistic approach to Tioli today, and we have one more for you from uh, Socrates. It's not Socrates, it's Socrates. I I like like it. it. Yeah, it's good. Good handle. On Twitter, the Eredivisie is the ideal league for CONCACAF players to start their European careers. Mm. Graham, what do we think here? We're taking this one. Obviously, got a few uh, US players playing in the Eredivisie at the moment. Are they better off there or in Germany or in France or elsewhere? Um, So obviously, it sort of depends on the individual player in that you could have someone in MLS or a CONCACAF player who is good enough to just go straight into a Premier League club and, and thrive. We've seen that in the past, of course. But I am probably taking the premise that the Eredivisie is a good stepping stone league for players coming over from uh, CONCACAF, particularly for attackers, because I don't think I'm being harsh or ignorant here. Um, Eredivisie defences aren't as strong as they are in the other big five leagues generally. So you see a lot of numbers about um, how attackers in the Eredivisie get more chances per 90 and a lot of the teams as well. I think this is a key part. A lot of the teams in, in the Eredivisie in Holland in general are ball-dominant teams because of the legacy of people like Cruyff and great Ajax teams and, and, and so on. So I think that sort of sets you up well for the kind of thing you can expect at the elite level in other countries if you do end up moving on. I think you could make a similar argument about other leagues, about Ligue 1 in particular, but my impression of Ligue 1 having watched more of that league certainly this season because Eredivisie isn't shown in, on, on UK TV this season and um, but my impression of Ligue 1 is that you get a lot more kind of counter-attacking teams which might be good for you if that's your style as a player Fuller and Balogun did very well at Rem last season but that might not give you the best grounding at the elite level playing in, in that style obviously I'm these are sweeping generalizations, but nonetheless. Um, I also saw some numbers from a study that said there are more scouts at Eredivisie matches than any other league in the world. So Portugal was p- pretty close in that number. Um, they were number two, but it was the Eredivisie that came out on top. So if you do well in that league, people are watching. You can get a move to a Premier League team or a La Liga team, and the number of top players that have come out of the Dutch league is kind of amazing for a country that isn't the biggest and doesn't have the biggest population and then finally my final point is that I think from a a cultural point of view the Netherlands is a good place to get accustomed to European life because um, from there you can go to Germany Belgium even France and I think there are cultural similarities or you can go to England and the UK and again I think there are similarities there I've been to the Netherlands a few times and it's a culture that sort of spans a number of different other cultures in my experience so I think that probably helps people moving a long way from home halfway across the world to go to somewhere like that whereas if you if you are using it as a a stepping stone culturally and sporting wise there are places you can go from that point yeah i think that's a really good point actually graham and obviously almost everybody there speaks really good english as well which will help uh, help players settle in so i imagine you have an easier time as an american coming there to say scotland where you'd have a massive language barrier (laughs) um joe it's it's true i can't even argue against (laughs) that right i know um Joe, is there something about the Eredivisie you think that makes it a special landing spot for players? I think there's a, players? a few things. Specifically, you know, we talked about the English language, but not not even just for American players coming from CONCACAF, but other players coming from this region as well, right? Players from Costa Rica, Trinidad and Tobago. Like, you can go into all of these other areas. I would say there's a few different reasons, and I'm taking this, by the way. I'd say there's a few different reasons that the Eredivisie kind of stands out here. They have a strong track record, number one, of signing CONCACAF players. So you can look at Americans, Michael Bradley, Jose Altador in the past. There's obviously others there now, Pepe, Dest, Tillman, etc. Then you look at Mexico, and there's a whole bunch. Edson Alvarez, Tecatito, Chucky Lozano, Santi Jimenez. There's others there too. Then they've had Costa Rican players. They've had players from Trinidad and Tobago, right? They, they've signed players from a host of different CONCACAF nations, and that track record is valuable, right? Eredivisie teams looking in this part of the world. Every everybody's looking over here, but the Eredivisie actually going and executing on it creates a pathway where there are legitimate channels for these players to go and move, maybe with less resistance than it would be in other places. Uh, the other things I've got on my list as to why I think this is probably the case, it's a good but not great league. It's clearly outside of the top European leagues, which makes playing time feasible for younger players and making a move you kind of want to go and actually play in a lot of cases and the bar is lower, right? I don't, I don't think that's unfair to say. And then the last one, the Eredivisie is heavily scouted by the elites of the elite leagues, right? It's a launch platform. Every big club in the world 
knows every player who plays for PSV, every player on their bench, every player for Ajax, every player for Feyenoord. They have a huge track record of moving players on. So it's not just the fact that they're looking in CONCACAF, which obviously they are, but it's the fact that everybody's looking to them in a way that I'm not sure these big clubs look really at any other league. I think they're paying a ton of attention to the Eredivisie, which is a really valuable thing. Yeah, I think that's fair. I don't know what the UEFA coefficients, Joe, but I, I always put sort of Portugal on the same level as the Eredivisie, for example. But it does feel like Holland has a bit more visibility, right? Yeah, yeah, it certainly seems that way. I think about Portugal and the Netherlands as like kind of the next two, right? Yeah. France is, I think, probably the best hotbed for talent, and a lot of that talent is French. And then you look at outside of Ligue 1, which is probably the fifth best league in the world by a, a pretty big gap from fifth to fourth. But you look at you look at Ligue 1, you look at the Netherlands, you look at Portugal, and then there's some you know more Eastern European leagues as well. And MLS is kind of making waves in this in South America, all that stuff. But yes, I think all that is is totally fair. Wonderful stuff. All right, guys, I think we've taken it, and now it's time to leave it. Graham, have you had, have you had fun today? You, have you recovered? Uh, yes, I have. I've just caught my breath. It's taken me 47 minutes, but I've, I've managed it. It says a lot about my uh, personal fitness. I think it's very impressive the way you've, uh, your recovery rate, your VO2 max must be very impressive. Uh, I think we should all go on the pie-based diet that you have. That's my advice. For VO2, v, what did you say? VO2 max? Your VO2 max uh, is your recovery uh, rate, I think. That sounds like an oil that you put in your car. I'm sure that's not a real thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, that's uh, that's Graham's take on uh, fitness, everybody. Uh, Graham, thank you very much for <laughs> taking it on leaving it today. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. Joe Lowry, a pleasure as always, my good sir. And uh, listener, just so you know, Joe had to get up and start recording at 5.45 local today. Joe, thank you very much for being an early bird today. Oh, thank you, Ryan. I will say I was the one who asked us to record at this time because I've got a flight to Ohio to catch. Um, so thank you to you guys for recording at a different time and Graham for disrupting oh, your yeah. fitness rhythm to join us today. What's happening no, in Ohio? No. Anything fun? Uh, unsure. Unsure. I'm not, I'm not totally Ooh. sure on what's going to happen there. I, I've heard... There are rumors of a media soccer game happening on Friday, um, and I'm going without both turf shoes or cleats, yeah. and I'm going to hope to scrounge them up while I'm there and embarrass myself on the soccer field. Are you Joe, going Joe without... got some Columbus food wrecks from gas I did. On, uh, on Monday, and so he's now just he's flying to Ohio to, to seek those out. It's a Columbus food there. tour is what's happening, 100%. Yeah. Joe, you need to bring some cleats or some shoes with you, right? It's not by design that you're not bringing them. You're, uh, you're going to... Yeah, it's it's not by design. I don't have any turf shoes, and I'm assuming we're playing on turf. So my thought was, why pack them and buy them here? I'll just figure it out and get some when I'm there or borrow some. or I don't know. We're, we're playing it by ear, baby. Flying by the seat I've of our pants. Ex- I've done that exact same thing where I was involved. I was invited to an MLS pickup game, and I had to go yeah. and buy turf shoes in, yep. uh, in New York. So I've been <laughs> oh. there, Joe. <laughs> go and buy them. You're just hoping the Adidas PR's listening. That's what nah, there's no, I'm not getting any shoes from Adidas. No chance. <laughs> Joe gets all the freebies. He got some kind of MLS Cup package as well. I spotted a, a couple of weeks ago. He got the yeah. free Apple TV thing at the start of the year. Yeah. We get nothing, Ryan. Make the yeah. shoes. Give me the shoes. <laughs> shoes, please. All right, there we go. I sent that out. There we the go. Very subtle indeed. Thank you very much, listener, for joining us on this episode. Let us know what you thought of it. Uh, why not join our Patreon once again? Patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show. We can chat in the Discord about this and much more. We'll be back on the feed very shortly. But for now, bye.